Welcome to Season 12 of the Art of Teaching Podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. Before we get started with our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal people, the traditional custodians of this land on which I'm recording, and pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land. Today I have the pleasure of sharing a recent conversation that I had with Dr. Simon Breakspear. Simon is a passionate educator and has always been so generous with his time. His work teaching sprints, which is a professional development process that supports overloaded educators to enhance their expertise, has been transformative to me and so many others across the world. In this conversation, we talked about some of his recent research into the pruning principle and how we can implement systems and processes to make time for what matters most. I hope that you enjoy this conversation I had with the incredible Dr. Simon Breakspear. Dr. Simon Breaksby, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, it's so lovely uh, to see you. How are things in your world? Thanks for the invitation. It's good to have the ex- excuse to reconnect. Yeah. Things are going really well. Great. It's uh, it, it, It's been a while, as we said before we hit record. Um, I think yourself and um, uh, Dr. Bronwyn Rari Jones were uh, very much early on in the podcast journey. So it's lovely to connect again. And like I said, it's wonderful to see some of the amazing work that uh, that you're doing and i'm sure we'll um we'll unpack that a little bit later but quite possibly the most important question simon what's your coffee order when i can finally nip over and buy your coffee yeah you can send a drone for the delivery uh i'll have a strong flat white small nice that's my coffee order as well um keep it simple yeah and is there a book i'm looking at your bookcase behind you simon that you've read recently that has caused you to kind of stop and just reconsider a few things in your life. It could be within your area of expertise or it could be much more broader. I would say the number one book in the last year is a book called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Oh. Uh, it's not an educational book, but it's the book I most regularly give out. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, as a, another person going through the kind of midlife unravelling of the 40-ish kind of phase, I found a, a really, really helpful book to sort of grapple with yeah, uh, people's, you know, that our lives are, uh, are finite and that many of us in our uh, sector are just desperate to create impact, uh, shift systems, do things of uh, meaning. And the book's just a terrific way of saying, yep, yep, that's fine. And by the way, uh, you've got to sort of put some boundaries around what you mm. can do in sort of one mortal life. And yeah. uh, I think it helped me rethink a little bit about I have a tendency to want to win through pro- productivity. That mm. is, you know, I've got. A, I'm, I can say I'm on the wrong side of a lot of good work, and I get my Trello board set, and I get my inbox done, and I sort of work through my schedule. And I think the book's been a really nice way of sort of saying, "Hey, um, uh, there's a trap in that as well." So yeah, yeah four thousand weeks. I'd really recommend it. Sounds like you've uh, engaged with it too, Matt. Oh, uh, yes, absolutely. And it's it's such a confronting book, and it. Um... It sounds really morbid, doesn't it, that we've only got 4,000 weeks uh, on earth, but it's actually quite liberating and quite refreshing and really beautifully written. And 
Simon, I'm just wondering, is there something that you have uh, changed or tweaked as a result of reading that book? Do you, for example, um, switch off when you go home better? Do you prioritize certain things? Or is there something that's really kind of changed um, in your life as a result of reading that book? Wow. Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, uh, there's this great chapter on rest within it, and that helped me sort of re-engage with, yeah, just thoughts about um, that many of the things I do in life, because I have so passion about what I'm on about, um, everything has a a real purpose about it. And there's a sense of how do you rest well? How do you engage in leisure and family activities and hobbies that aren't always with an end in mind? Uh, and that can actually be in that more being mode. So I've definitely okay. tried to cultivate that more systematically. And I think as well, you know, we'll get into it, I'm sure, but you know, for the last 20 years, I've sort of dedicated everything that's within me to think about how do you do large-scale change in complex systems. And to be honest, a lot of the last 10 years, many of our systems, and Michael Fullan would say this, is mm. it's been a bit of a lost decade, not at all talking about what's been happening in particular classrooms or schools. But, you know, large-scale system change in the broader dynamics of uh, the challenges around politics and challenges around COVID and other things. And I think it helps you. He's got this phrase of a, a modestly meaningful life. And I think it's helped me say, look, I want to make a, a meaningful contribution in this space. Mm. But it's probably helped me somewhat to reduce the sort of angst around uh, come on, we've got to have got this done by now. We've got to have shifted this in a certain way. And I think it's it sort of is this great chapter on cosmic insignificance therapy, oh. which is an idea of yeah. just saying, look, yeah, you might be able to do some things in the world, but um, maybe think carefully about in one finite life what what you might be able to do. And so I find both that that yeah. sense of rest and then that sense of boundaries around uh, what might I be able to contribute um, in the long run in the sector. And just perhaps being a little bit more sceptical of the Kool-Aid that I grew up on, which was very much go make a dent in the universe and, you know, very much go try to make a dent uh, for social impact. Um, But that sense of understand also the complexity of of large systems and um, just make a modestly, you know, meaningful contribution. I'm not sure if that's making sense, Matt, but there's there's bits about rest and there's bits about just being okay with the work in front of me and not constantly having that sense of, but we've got to, we've got to do more. We've got to be more. Yeah. We've got to get this happening faster. I couldn't agree more, Simon. And I'm a, um, I'm like a, I'm a type A personality. Like I want to get it done. Like I don't want to have a conversation about how to get it done. I want to do it. I want to tick things off my list. And I read that book and it really forced me just to stop and think really? it's actually important mm-hmm. here. And I think sometimes we sort of, overestimate our significance, like you're saying in the universe. And we think that um, all of these things, I think that we pursue while they're meaningful, they're not going to be the things that are actually lasting. I mean, I'm sure you'll agree you're a dad to three. I don't know how you find the time to do that and everything that you do. I've two little ones, but it's, um, it's a real reminder, isn't it? Um, That our significance is quite often um, the time that we get to spend with those that matter most to us. And the difference that we're going to make for me uh, are currently the three people that are living in my house. And I think it's a good reminder. Um, And I heard this quote once and, um, and it was saying that the true measure of success is your kids wanting to hang out with you when you've, when you're grown up. Um, (laughs) And and it really kind of made me pause and, and think about that. And, before we get too philosophical and then move into your work, um, how has being a dad uh, changed you? 
Wow. Well, um, well, firstly, it took us a little while, even though I was uh, early 30s when we had our first child, but um, yeah. long awaited for my wife yes. and I being together since we're in our early 20s. And so I think there was just this deep sense of being grateful for the opportunity yeah. to have that role in my life. And that was a huge thing uh, to sort of enter into fatherhood and then uh, have the blessing of having two more little ones come along pretty quickly. Uh, it definitely sort of reorientated myself. I, I was I saw everything before. Uh, you know, how do we change systems? I come from a psychology research background, and so I sort of always saw things through, um, you know, the data or through mm -hmm. uh, what the psychological findings would be and how might you influence mm -hmm. learning and human development. And suddenly you got this life in front of you, and you're like, okay, yeah. none of that theory really plays out in the particular. And I think this lovely dynamic of, um, you know, how different all of your kids are, even though technically they're coming from the same sort of genetic pool, you think, oh my goodness, you know, they're just this beautiful watching out of these things that are clearly uh, naturally built into them, things that they learn and discover. And just this sense of um, all, all of you know, when teaching, you often talk about you're trying to use certain practices to enable certain types of learning in the classroom, et cetera. And in parenting, it's this whole other kind of thing, which is sort of you're yeah. just constantly grappling, and certain things work at certain times, and certain things don't. And then you're trying to use the right strategies, but then you're yeah. not modeling the right things. And anyway, yeah. so it's this beautiful kind of journey of um, being involved in the human development of people that you live with and you love. And so, yeah, all of that. And then I would also say that sort of recalibration because you said, like, how do you find the time? Well, the thing with kids, they demand the time. Yeah. It's not like, how do you find the time to catch up with friends when you're busy at work? Well, often you end up not. The kids demand the time, right? And so what's lovely is they, they shrink the space that you have to get lovely. overly caught up in some of work. And they, um, as we talked about before, they, they actually bring you into the present. They demand you in the present. And so that's been a, a real blessing as well in the sense of I've learned that I'm often unpacking something in the past or planning something for the future. And I'm very rarely actually where I am. Yeah. Uh, but as a dad, uh, there's a sense where you're right there in the Lego blocks or you're right there in the park. Yeah. Uh, and there's a beautiful sense that parenthood brings you into the present and helps you see again things that you were overlooking. I don't know. Does that make sense? What about yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely, Simon. And I, I was listening to a podcast and we I promise we'll move on after this. Um, one of my new favorite podcasts called uh, the Tired Dad Podcast, which I think is a brilliant title. And um, uh, they were having a conversation and saying that um, we're actually holding our child's, sorry, our children's childhood in our hands. And it really mm. made me kind of stop and think and go, wow, like this is actually a really special um, point in their life. And we all have, child, uh, we all can remember our childhood and there's different yes. things that we remember from that. But but I actually get to shape and mould and uh, steward um, my child's childhood. And I really, I kind of stopped on the side of the road. I pulled over and I got some petrol and, and, and they were talking about that. And I just had to take a moment and go, all right, slow down. Where are you? Yeah, I love that. We're actually responsible my wife and I for making these little humans and you only get one go at childhood and so it was a good reminder I think just to slow down and honestly Simon I could get dad advice from you uh, for hours but I'm, I'm... Well, I don't know about that I think it'd be mutual learning you know one thing on the Berkman book that I raised here I think it came out of this but 
Yeah. It fits education as well because it talks about that, you know, childhood is not preparation for adulthood. That's right. And I think it's a really important frame. Like childhood is not just preparation for adulthood. And it fits educational lens as well. But I think so often we get caught up now mm. in that very much. And look, there's good reasons behind it. But, you know, oh, we really want the kid to learn how to read now. So that then they're going to be able to do this. And then they're going to be able to do this. And then they're going to be able to do this. And everything sort of, we can get the childhood right. Then the thing. And I was yeah. like, wait a second. Why are we rushing through childhood? Like childhood is an end in of itself. It doesn't always mm. have to be this thing to preparation the future. And I think, uh, you know, I live in Sydney and there's this, there is just this growing sense even amongst parents and I have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old and a five-year-old who say, oh, are they doing this? Are they doing this? Are they preparing for this? And of course, there's um, wisdom in thinking about supporting uh, some of those milestones and development. But there's also this sense of, you know, childhood being an end of itself, being mm. a playful and wonderful phase of life that many of us, if we we're fortunate to have uh, a calm and consistent upbringing, look back fondly with. And we don't want to turn it into something that's always preparation for some future. Because I don't know, I've been an adult for a while now, and uh, being a kid's pretty great. I, I don't want to—I don't want to turn my kid's childhood into a preparation for adulthood. Yeah. Because as a you know, as it as its end as its end point. So uh, I think they also, when you let them have that childhood, um, then they they bring you back into that playful space as well. Yeah. I love that. I was talking to my daughter about this last night and she was saying um, her name's Harper and she's six. She's in kindy. She just loves, she's amazed that she's got a male teacher and she talks about him all the time. And and she is saying, she goes, Daddy, it's pretty fun being a girl in this family. And I said, oh, I go, tell me about that, Harper. And he goes, <clears throat> he goes, I get hugs as soon as I get up in the morning and you listen to me, you help me with your homework and I can feel it in my heart. And mm. I thought, Geez, we must be doing something right, you know. Yeah, it's, good for you. It's a really, it's a really, really <laughs> good jerker on that one. Oh, well. it is. And and mate, like I said, I could talk to you all day about dad. We could start a separate podcast about dad chat. Um, but I am really interested, Simon. It has been a while since we've recorded a podcast, and and I'm interested in uh, what uh, is consuming your life at the moment professionally. I mean, what are some of the things that you are doing? And when someone says, "Hey, Simon, what do you do? How uh, how do you respond to that?" Wow. I hate the question, and it's partially because it's um, a, yeah. Well, parts of my life I've had an easy answer. People uh, like to have an easy answer, like um, you know, I'm a teacher at this school, um, or I'm a principal at this school, or I'm a director in this department, or I'm a senior lecturer at this um, university. And there's still this sense of people wanting to know what you do by what's yeah. the one dominant role. And for a lot of us. We'll move in and out of dominant roles, but what really, what, what am I working on? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to always think about how to enhance the long-term impact and health of schools. Mm. So I think schools are probably the most important institution in our modern societies. Yeah, I think they have a huge weight of responsibility to change the learning and human development uh, trajectories of a lot, lot of young people and public systems, particularly for those that. Um, may not have the same advantages, particularly in the first three or four years of life as I was able to have. And so that's what I'm on about. Everything I'm doing is trying to enhance the long-term impact and the organization, the organizational health of schools. Uh, how do I do that? Well, at this point in my life, I'm an applied academic that spends most of my time trying to build leadership team capability. And I'm spending my time building out 
easy to use tools and frameworks based on research, uh, leading professional learning and workshops that are basically always long-term, and then providing advisory support and coaching to help people uh, preferably get clearer about what they're trying to do and, and make better decisions. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of how I'm going about sort of trying to contribute to the thing that I work on. I'm an adjunct senior lecturer and I, you know, have various advisory roles. I'm advisor to the New South Wales Department. I've been for their School Leadership Institute and now the last two years on their formal curriculum reform advisory group. And I have different hats, but Matt, the thing I'm mostly trying to do is enhance the long-term impact and organisational schools. And I do that mostly by investing in school leadership teams and the tools and the frameworks they have to make their work yeah. better and easier. Yeah. Um, what's consuming me, uh, I don't know, I guess in the last two weeks, I can give you a bit of a, a yeah. sample of what my life looks like. 60, 80% of my life is working shoulder to shoulder with school or system leadership teams, uh, normally in something that looks like some type of workshop slash coaching dynamic, and that can be both online or in person. Uh, so last week I spent four days in Victoria. I'm traveling a lot less. I probably travel 80% less than I did in uh, 2019, uh, both for family reasons mostly, and then also uh, the COVID kicker uh, really helped in helping people engage in different types of ways. Um, but last week in Victoria, I was I spent a day in two different large Catholic regions, um, both for about 100 schools each. I've been working with both of those regions for three and a half years, all the way through COVID on at least four to five occasions per year. We come together as school improvement teams with the region there as well. So it's not just opt-in schools. We're working in regional improvement collaboratives and working through cycles of five to 10 weeks with what they're going to do next, how they're going to apply the evidence, how that's going. So a lot of my work is very much long-term and it's mostly at multi-level. So I never just go after just teachers or just mid-level leaders. Wherever possible, I'm trying to work with the system people and the school improvement team and the mid-level leaders in the same room because that alignment and coherence matters. Yeah. Thursday, Friday, I uh, have a lot of long-term projects with the Victorian Academy. Uh, we lead their training for their network leaders. And Victoria really leads the way in getting schools together to work collaboratively and networks on improvement. So we had a annual two-day residential. I was fortunate to bring in my friend um, and mentor Vivian Robinson. So um, I was the show and she was the substance uh, for the two days. And uh, we work with, you know, 140 either network principals uh, who lead the learning for the network or their senior education improvement leaders who, who work in partnership. And, you know, I would have pre-prepared case studies with six or eight of those network leaders that they were going to do. Uh, we were applying Vivian's work of collaborative problem solving to the communities of practice that are run in Victoria. Wow. Um, you know, on Tuesday this week, I ran sessions for on uh, how to get to clarity and using rapid action plans. In the wow. afternoon, I ran a statewide forum for all of the primary schools in New South Wales as part of their curriculum reform communities, yeah. uh, implementation yeah. work. Gosh. Yesterday, I had 10 dioceses from across New South Wales, uh, system level leaders come in for a day in Sydney, uh, planning their 2024 curriculum support for primary schools. Um, that's just the last six, seven days. Um, and so mm-hmm. all of that, I say, because it's always for me about long-term work. So you're doing the right type of work with the right type of people over the long term. 
trying to give people tools and frameworks that make their job more precise and easier and partnering with them over the longer term because what I've learned is a lot of the ideas that work in theory or that people give you great feedback work on uh, feedback on the day they don't land and last in the complexity of schools mm -hmm. and so wherever possible I want multi-year multi-level and open co-learning I call most of our work like a co-lab co-learning look I've got some thesis and some ideas here hypotheses you've got lots of grounded work no one knows how to do this hey do you want to try to work it out together and that's basically what it looks like Simon I thought I had a big week uh but um yeah you you're definitely Thanks for that man I've just been preparing for this interview I was yeah. just like <laughs> That's right. So I remember um, sitting in a conference, at, 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 gosh, it would have been maybe a number of years ago, and being really impressed uh, by your Trello board. Um, tell me. Uh, you don't want to see it. <laughs> tell me how, um, I, how do you organize your time? How do you prioritize what's important? As we mentioned, you're a, a dad to three kids. You're you're married. I'm sure there's plenty of other things kind of vying for your attention. But how do you prioritize what's important to you? Um, yeah, what are some of the practical things that you do to to help get your head? I around? would say, yeah, 2019. I was not aligned with values. I was <laughs> not aligned with it, it. It had just kind of. I had three kids within four years. Yeah, I was trying to work at this system level. People didn't work online back then. They wanted you in person. Um, my the main systems that I've been working on in have been you know the vast majority of Australian systems New Zealand I was in Western Canada three to four times a year um, uh, and then some work in Scotland and Wales and I was just totally out of alignment with my values I would say I waited all this time to be a dad I want to be this and I was in and out apologetic and my you know wonderful wife was taking some time off from a primary school teaching at that point but eventually at the start of 2020 that I started to say it's time to get an alignment and I asked myself how long can I keep running at this rate and I thought I don't want to keep I don't want to do this for more than five more years and then I thought well even if you take an impact lens you're going to be much more useful saying I'm in this game for 20 30 more years and working at a moderate pace and working at calm progress and being there for these are big complex problems like i know i've got to lean in for in counting in decades from now to move the needle on the things i care about and so it's like how do i set that work up so that i still have joy in the work that my family has joy in the in the work that that that, that dad does um outside and so i said 2020 i'm taking the year off international travel and then COVID came so i was like woohoo pick that really well um, and I started to kind of really rethink and I, I talked to a couple of mentors and, and, and people who did it. And so, look, basically, uh, I've tried to get much more ahead of my calendar. So my 2024 calendar would already have now my family holidays and time off. They go in first. I started to move quite rigorously towards um, uh, at least a 36 hour no work window, a sort of a modern day Sabbath, if you like. And then increasingly over the last year went into um, no work on weekends. I started to not work at home wherever possible. I'm lucky I have an office really close. And so this idea of being fully present when I was home, it's not something that everyone can do. I'm fortunate I can walk to, uh, to my office space. But it means that even if I did need to go back and do something, I was trying not to do that in the same space as my kids. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was only for me. Once I'm in, I told you before, Matt, I'm not very good 
once I'm doing something, I'm no longer in the present. I'm just solving the thing in the future. And so uh, I've had some of those things. And then there's other things. I, I want to be a better friend, Matt. Like I have a principal friend uh, and so not like the leading friend, a friend who is a principal. And in 2022, um, we saw each other twice. We said, this is ridiculous. We're friends. Have we seen each other twice? Once for Christmas and once for your birthday. And so we said, so what would it be like to try to get into a monthly cadence of committing to catching up on a certain night? And so there's things where I sort of say, um, I think about the different roles I want to play uh, as, a, as, a, as a husband, as a partner, but also like as a brother, as a son, as a friend, as a community member. And what I try to think about is, are there some regular rhythms or routines that wherever possible I could put into the schedule? And I try to get in front of those things and get them in early. And then I craft around some other pieces. And um, yeah, I, I normally help with drop-offs and pickups wherever I can on Monday and Tuesday. My wife's back teaching those days. Um, but again, there's always this tension because people will say, you know, we really want to do this work with you. Here's the opportunity. It's Tuesday and I need to fly out Monday afternoon. And there's these trade-offs about, or oh, I need to... I find it still really hard. There's no way I can put a value on what it's like to be home at 4.30 on a Monday and be there in the rhythm of my kids. Yeah. And yet sometimes there's certain things that I'm really committed to in the mission that I sort of feel like I'm on and what I'm trying to contribute to. So they're the trade-offs now, Matt, for me, that I'm in these ideal rhythm weeks, but then uh, my wonderful partners and clients out there in the world of education, I never want to let them down. And so I'm always, always in that tension. So that's how I'm kind of yeah. going about it. But wherever possible, put in the big pieces um, and at least have the default closer to what will work. Simon, I, I'm so grateful for your um, for your honesty, and even over the years, just your generosity. When um, whether I've, whenever we've caught up and had a chat, or uh, and your responsiveness, it's it's also, but it's also really great to hear the other side of that. Uh, is that it is still a challenge. I mean, you've got children, you've got commitments, you've got a mortgage, presumably you're 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 working for yourself, and so quite often the things that you say no to mean that you don't get paid for that so it's not just a time it's a it could be a financial challenge as well and so it's really great to hear the other side of that um and, and i'm hugely grateful that you um would be so honest and share that and it seems like a really uh, great um segue now into talk of talking about the pruning principle and something that you are um uh currently um doing a lot of really interesting research in would you mind maybe unpacking that and why that's um such a significant part of your your focus at the moment yeah, sure, Matt. Appreciate you asking. I suppose maybe I'll start by not answering the question and just got to give a sense for people I, I don't sure. know listening up sure. how I go about my work. So I'm always asking basically the question, how can I be most useful to school and system leaders? And of course, teacher leaders, mid-level leaders stepping into that work. And it's a really important frame because it's really easy to come up with things that are a bit shiny and a bit interesting. But what I'm normally doing in these longer term projects and I'm sitting shoulder to shoulder and working with leaders and, and listening to them is I'm trying to work out like what's something they're grappling with. Sometimes they're grappling with it, but they don't yet have language to describe it. Or they haven't quite defined the problem space yet. Yeah. And so what I'm always thinking about is what is a real problem that's emerging from the field? I don't come in saying as an academic, oh, what's something that I could publish in that would allow me to kind of publish papers and, you know, get out my little niche and I'll, I'll be able to sort of uh, develop my academic career that way. And that's the problem at the moment with educational academia. The number one thing you need to do is find a place you can publish 
multiple things on and have a unique perspective on, but no one says, is this useful to yeah, anyone? That's true. And so, yeah. you know, I, I modeled my career much more on heroes like Vivian Robinson and Michael Fullan, where it's been very much about start with practice, start with what they actually need. And then your job, because you're not in the day-to-day 55-hour, 60-hour-week running a school, is to do the sense-making and then say back to people, hey, is, is this what you're feeling? Is this what you're experiencing? They go, yeah, that's it. And then you say, uh, would would this be helpful? Because you go and look at the theory and you go, look, would this be helpful? And sometimes they go, yeah, yeah, that's helpful. Or, yeah, look, it's helpful, but I, I could never get myself to use it. Yeah. And so I say, this is my theory. This is the way I work. So I'm looking for problems, looking for things, handing it back to people. Is this about right? Trying to design a solution that might work. And when we spend a couple of years working with people, making all this makes, making it, and we're talking before before we recorded about getting it to the simplicity, getting it to ease, getting mm-hmm. it right down to the essential bits. And then when I think I've got something, I start to share it more at, you know, conferences, other things. So teaching sprints we talked about last time is a good example of this. It started back in 2015. It started in a project I did with the Alberta Teachers Association. It was originally called Improvement Sprints. It had about six or seven steps. And then over two or three years, we were trying to say, how could we design a professional learning process that really worked with busy teams that would allow the majority of people to make progress? And over two or three years, it kind of came down to a three-step process, uh, simple tools and resources and something that people could use. And it changed names multiple times. Uh, Teachers told us they thought improvement sprints down are too negative because they had to fix something. And and then we were calling it learning sprints because it was all about teacher learning that gets to student learning. And then Bron said to me one day, she goes, just, just call it teaching sprints. I'm like, but we've been doing it for four years. And she's like, just call it what it is. And so I say that, Matt, because everything I'm doing is always right. grappling with something, playing around, working in partnership with practitioners. And then when I think I find something, only then saying, does this help? And then I find the idea spread pretty quickly. Yeah. So that's a long sort of, and, and so that's been the work for you know, teaching sprints as an example, or the work I do on team health, which is sort of high performance team language doesn't really land in schools, but what were we talking about? Okay. Could we carve out something and help people reflect on their team dynamics uh, or the models that we, we teach under our agile school leadership work, which yeah. is basically school leadership improvement planning doesn't work. Everyone's just filling in these templates and sort of trying to keep the system happy. We said, well, for five years, I've been working uh, with friends like Dr. Ryan Dunn at Melbourne University, and we've been saying, what does it actually look like when it works? And what's the smallest number of tools? So I say all of that. that. I'm at the front end of a new funnel. I'm at the front end of something. And you've um, kindly asked me this question about pruning. So here's, here's what it's about. Let me see whether it resonates with you and you can help me make the idea better. Um, have you noticed that everyone seems really busy, Matt? I have. have you noticed that their plans are overloaded? Yes. Have you noticed that um, COVID gave us a pause where we all stopped? And then we thought, oh, maybe we're going to come out of this only focused on the essential few. And instead, we got all the old things come back and a whole bunch of new things. Yes. Every year, we have a planning process. And when you and I look at each other and we say, you know what? We've got a high moral imperative here to make an impact. What are the additional things we're going to do this year Yeah, in our classrooms and our teams? And the problem is we are now at a point where we're in this additive trap, where no matter what, if you care about equity and excellence, we're always saying, do everything you're currently doing. And then what we need to do is add something marginal, something additional that'll somehow be the impact this time. Mm. 
And I reckon we're a little bit now like, you know, I'm not sure this is true for you right now, but you know about week four or five of term and you haven't turned off your computer and you've got lots of applications open and you've got 221 internet tabs open from different newsletters and research and things you need to look at and you think, I just can't risk turning it off and everything starts running slow. I reckon many of our teams, many of our schools, potentially many of our classrooms and definitely many of our systems at this point where we have so many things open that we're now starting to run slow. And as one leader said to me, he said, Simon, I've been flat out all week, I'm exhausted, and I don't think I've achieved anything. And the hardest part of that is the last bit. I care about his well-being on the flat out and exhausted, but I'd almost be willing to, to for him to cope with that for a few weeks if it's and it's made meaningful progress. He's, I don't think I've ex- achieved anything because he's been so busy managing the work, meeting about the work, debriefing about the work, answering the emails about the work, joining the webinar about some other bit of work. He hasn't actually got to do the work. So I think I've been thinking about what do we do about the additive trap? And everyone wants less. Everyone wants the end state of simplicity. But what I started to learn from schools that I partner with is they didn't have any systems, processes, language, or tools about how to get to less, how to get to a state of what I call calm progress. So I've been playing around with this notion of pruning and it's been resonating. And I think it resonates because number one, pruning is a really natural process in in living ecosystems. Pruning is not about reducing resources, by the way. We don't want to touch the water, nutrients in the soil or sunlight. So this is not about downsizing. Pruning is about saying in organic growth within you know, one plant or across a whole orchard, sometimes we have to cut back in order to remove the dead, the damaged and the diseased because we want to redirect our energy and resources to the things that matter most, to the fruit bearing or the flower producing area. The other nice thing about pruning, though, is you don't just prune the dead and the damage. It's not just like, oh, it didn't work. It's also you should prune the things that are working because mm. you've got to stimulate rejuvenation. And um, because schools are long-term institutions, we're like long, long-term fruit-bearing trees. We actually need pruning, even if the PLC is working really well, prune it back at the end of this year to regenerate, to rejuvenate, and to generate new. And so I'm finding it as, as language that people are saying back to me. And that's always a good sign because I think, right. oh, we've defined the problem. We've got a concept that resonates. And now what I've been working on are the tools and the rhythms such that I reckon every school needs planning season, but you don't enter planning season before pruning season. What do you reckon? Simon, I think that's brilliant. And um, and going back a little bit, one of the things that, were, I, that really sort of drew me to your work back in um, when I first heard you speak um, was when you were talking about teaching sprints. And I was just um, like, I think it was the first time that I sat in uh, at a conference or in professional learning. And I thought, this guy actually gets what I'm going through. Like he gets it. Like it's not this sort of, I mean, I, I'm sure you're the same. You've, been, you've sat through hundreds or thousands of hours of professional development and you're like, yeah, but what does this actually mean when I get back in front of my class? Or how is this actually going to make a difference to my team? And I think what was so wonderful about, like I said, teaching sprints and continues to have such an impact in my life and the lives of those that I lead, um, and also the pruning principle, is that it's it's so simple. And you understand the complexity and the challenges and the frustrations and the inefficiencies and all of that stuff about schools and school systems. And it just this principle just makes sense. 
And um, it, yeah, it's really, it's so simple, isn't it? Like that we actually need to take the time to stop, to think about what we're doing and recognize the season that we're not, not only in personally, but also um, professionally as a school and, and decide what's important. And I think my challenge though, Simon, is how do we actually know um, or identify kind of specific opportunities for, for pruning? Because that's hard, isn't it? When you're running at a hundred miles an hour, you've got a million things on, you've got to phone that parent back, you've got to write that kid's report, you've got to clean up that stain on the carpet in your classroom. How on earth do you decide what are the things I should be pruning and 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 how do you even kind of begin to think about or begin to get your head out of the weeds, so to speak? All right. Well, man, I think there's a couple of levels here. and hey, That's, that's like, a big question. We're, yeah. we're, we're co-constructing. Well, the, the main thing I want to say is that, you know, we can get on the wrong side of a lot of good work because yeah. of our own decisions, right? Yes. And so there's pruning at the personal level, which is where I'll take the answer. But also a lot of our work is also because there's insufficient pruning and in this type of thinking at the team level mm. or at the school organizational level or at the region level or at the system level. And so I want to say that, you know, pruning done collectively and at all levels is going to be required. Mm. But let's start with self-responsibility. And so um, a, a thinker that I really uh, draw a lot from, Carl Newport, yeah, uh, an, an academic in computer science and also a great writer about uh, productivity and our crazy distracted time. Uh, he talks about that we start saying no, Matt, at when we're about 120%. So 100% of our time and ability. And what happens is once we're about working almost a day over, I don't mean a whole day on the weekend, but you're working nights, the computer comes back open, you've got into the habit of, oh, I just, I just like a couple of hours on a Saturday or a Sunday just to get myself set up for Monday. You know, these things creep yeah. in as norms we'll that we it. talk to each other about, right? And so he says, once we get to about 120%, then we start saying no. So once we're filling a few evenings, doing a little bit on the weekend, or I know even some leaders, they're like, oh, I love Friday nights because I really clear the decks. And I'm like, oh, no, where have we got to? Then they start saying no. But he says we should actually be starting to say no or not yet, closer to 80%. And so what happens is we do know how to say no. We do know how to prune back, but we often wait till we're already in the overload because that gives us, an, I would say, an education, the emotional license to say, look, it's not that I don't care because I'm already over my limit. And now that I'm over my limit, I can say no. But what we actually need to do is to know much earlier in the warning signal. So uh, what I normally do when I'm coaching leaders, and I do, a, I think I'm really fortunate that people let me into their lives. And if I've ever made sense to you, it's probably because I spend most of my time in long-term projects, listening to people on the ground, being in schools, et cetera. So one of the things I do straight away is we have a really simple framework called the 4Ds framework, where we say, all right, so you're on the wrong side of a lot of good work. And they're like, yeah. So, okay, we got to triage right now rather than just this idea of just grind it out. So uh, the first uh, D is dump. So we go through through the calendar, or I would look at my kind of to-do list and just say, what is something here that really in the criteria of having an impact on the things that matter that I could just dump, just not do? And how bad would the impact of that? And a lot of people aren't willing to do that because they have had such a high degree of conscientiousness they go, well, what that would say about me is like, what it says about you is that you can actually prioritize around the things to get to the impact. So the first D is dump, and we go looking for any dumps. The next one is delay. So are there some things you're doing in this season that could easily be pushed into next season? And we, we can't do that endlessly, but again, trying to create that little bit of uh, bandwidth. 
The next one is delegate. So we actually say, are there ways that we might be able to uh, empower some other people to take a part of this or all of this? And then the last column is do. Love and so it's a nice way of sort of, what are the things that only you can do in your role or that are essential? And how do you use some of those other things? And I often use that as a trigger point. And what we can normally do in the first three Ds is get people back under 100% of capacity being asked for. I love that. I, I feel very grateful that you'd take the time to chat to me today. I feel like... Uh... There's a, uh, I got to step four, which is the do, which I'm very grateful. Like I said, that you would talk to me. Yeah, you did. Um, I think, but, but I think though, seriously, Simon, like whenever you say yes to something though, you are saying no to something else. I think that's been a big revelation to me. Like when I'm saying um, yes to writing this math program at nine o'clock at night, I'm actually saying no to spending time on the couch talking to my wife about her hopes and her dreams and her work and all the things that are going on. And Oh, wow. You have much more productive evenings than us. We would just uh, say, do you want to be the person sitting next to me on the couch <laughs> while Netflix is on, but you're also on your phone? But that's fine. That's okay. Yeah, look, um, I, I'm, glad she's, I'm glad she's not here to uh, uh, to give the Verify truth. Verify your claims, eh? <laughs> yeah, but but it is, it, it, is, it is true though, isn't it? We think that... Um, a yes has come at a cost. And if that cost is justified, then it's okay. Like, I think for me, I'm starting to notice that, um, uh, as I mentioned before, we're just at that point now with our kids where we're starting to feel normal again. And so for me saying yes to going to the gym at six o'clock in the morning is actually saying no to seeing them first thing in the morning when they wake up. And so uh, being aware of that trade-off for me, I think has been really important. Um, and also me saying yes to staying back at school one night to do report writing is also saying no to my responsibilities as a parent. And it doesn't, you, you can't do everything, but what you can do is be aware of the cost. And, and as I said, for me, that was really meaningful to um, uh, to kind of understand that is that our time is finite. And this is going back to the work of uh, Oliver Berkman as well. Our time is finite and we're not going to get it back again. And we're fools if we think that we can continue doing everything because at some point they, they come to cost. Would, would you agree with that, Simon? I mean, how. Um, uh, That's a really helpful frame, actually. This yeah. uh, I'll go back to my high school economics days of opportunity cost. Yeah. Right? There's a sense of that every yes is a no, but I just want to broaden it out and I want to broaden it out. So you and I are talking here about the limiting resource in the allocation equation being time. And here's what I've learned, that we often run out of cognitive and emotional energy before we run out of time, Absolutely. particularly in the educational game. Absolutely. So when I'm coaching leaders in this work, we're often talking about how do we get a greater alignment between your resources, which we talk about attention, cognitive energy, time, and the things that matter most in your role. And what we want to do is take those, those two parts of the Venn diagram and bring them together as, as, as close as possible, as often as possible. So increasingly, it's not just time. It's uh, what I would describe as when do you allocate your cognitive prime time? I know mine is early in the morning. Like if I haven't cracked the hard thing cognitively before 10.30, I'm probably not going to. Other people's are in the evening or the afternoon. Once you know that, here's the thing. If I hand over to you my cognitive prime time for that day and only get one window a day, that window doesn't open up again for a whole other 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So the opportunity cost is not like, oh, well, I could just, oh, Matt wants to meet at nine o'clock on Monday. Oh, cool. Yeah, that fits. Oh, I've got a gap. He's got a gap. But it's not because it's also my cognitive prime time. Yeah. 
And I know. So the yes to you then is even a greater no, because it's not like I can just move that to the slot in the afternoon. And so as leaders start to realize individually, things like cognitive energy, uh, sorry, cognitive focus, attention often runs out for time. What about this? Then that's true also of your team and it's true also of your school. So if I use the example of like cognitive prime time for the individual, what I'd say, when's improvement prime time for Mm -hmm. your school? Yeah. The seasonality of a year. And we can go through it and say, there's a little window here, then there's a window here. Okay. So if you crowd that out by having too many things happening or split attention, you lose that whole window. There may not be another two or three months again until you actually find another window to do that. So I guess I'm raising the stakes here and I'm trying to say an hour is not an hour or a week is not a week where they land often are really important. And so that even elevates the need to make very clear decisions about what goes where. Yeah, I, I think that that's so important. And we just assume that because we have an hour somewhere and a task that we need to do, that that task needs to be allocated. Yeah. And it is crazy. And and honestly, like, and I, I'm not just saying this because we're having a chat. Like I remember sitting through that first piece of professional learning with you with teaching sprints and it and I I started mapping out my day but not only mapping out my day in terms of getting more and more stuff done I actually started to think about when are my most productive or valuable times in the day and how can I really utilize that and one of the things that I started doing after uh, sitting in uh, your professional learning was um, sitting down each day um, early in the morning and writing something something it could be about education it could be a, a yep. journal entry it could be a, a letter to my yes. kids but just something that was really meaningful and also something that was that would really set my day off and then I also chose one thing each day to do early in the morning that was a high priority task and that was a result of amazing uh, amazing you speak and that has really changed the game for me um and I love what you're saying about how an hour is not just an hour because it could be the most productive time that you have and as a parent especially the young kids um, you don't have the luxury of in huge amounts of time. Sometimes you just need to use yep. your time more effectively, um, which I think is really interesting. But um, Simon, I was just wondering, um, you, you talked about so many um, different types of cognitive biases, and we won't go into all of them uh, in the short time that we have left, but I would love you just to maybe unpack the sunk cost fallacy, because I think that's particularly meaningful for schools that are overcommitted to a, to numerous projects. So why is that relevant to the, the concept of pruning? So let's just sort of put a line and say the concept of pruning is really powerful at the individual level. We've sort of been oscillating here between pruning and what I would call sort of adaptive time blocking, thinking about your ideal energy flows, where that fits, uh, stop just handing over a slot because someone wants it and thinking about really intently uh, how do you turn up in the world to make your highest level contribution and how do you allocate time and energy around that? And then there's this piece that says, do you believe that schools are long-term human ecosystems, right? Do you want to, do you want us to thrive into 2030, into 2040, and 2050? I believe our schools are going to be some of the most thriving institutions left in 2050. Absolutely. And all the trend lines around the tech conversations is that schools are probably the place where that we're going to be more human together, right? And indeed, we're probably going to have increasingly schools where there's going to be the modelling of sort of um, less technology-enabled interaction and much more the serve and return of eye contact like you and I are experiencing Mm -hmm. here. And so I sort of think schools are long-term institutions. Part of uh, long-term 
and I'll use you know pruning terms here, structural structural integrity and vitality. That is that you have the structural integrity and vitality over time to keep bearing fruit. Well, you can collapse under the weight of yourself unless we do it this work. So we're going to have to prune. So we're going to have to prune regularly. Uh, we're going to have to catch up with some pruning that's been you know uh, not looked at for too long. And the nice thing about pruning here is that there's no addition, no addition allowed in the answers. So when we do pruning sessions, uh, we give people license that over this conversation, only subtractive uh, ideas are allowed. And if anyone says, oh, and then we'll do this, we go, eh, no, sorry, this whole hour or on this whole week, only subtractive answers. So this is the first sort of frame to say, we've got to set up and it's so unnatural for people because they think I care about outcomes. How can I talk about subtraction? until they start to learn actually that sometimes we can make things better by making them more simplified. And when people don't understand this, I often say, hey, have you ever done a long trip? Maybe you had a really expensive overseas trip. Like, yeah, yeah. Did you ever want to make it really, really good so you kept adding things to it? And they're like, yeah, yeah. It's like, how do you improve the average travel itinerary? You take a lot of things out of it. And so you sort of, there's all sorts of things you can make better through reduction. Writing is often better through reduction. Um, the balance bike rather than training wheels, you know, a practical example of something that's better, by not just having better training wheels, but get rid of the training wheels and get rid of the pedals. There's lots of subtractive answers that are better. All right. So then you have to set up this frame, which is so unnatural. And then you've got to realize that a lot of us will still struggle with subtraction. One of the reasons that some of the cognitive biases that um, you know psychologists have helped us sort of uh, understand that we're not entirely rational beings, and as you said, one of the ones is the sunk cost fallacy. And the sunk cost fallacy is just the human tendency that once we've put money, resources, energy into something, even if it's not resulting in its desired outcome, because we think we've already spent $500 or 500 professional learning hours collectively as a school on something, that that somehow should influence the decision to spend another dollar or another hour of professional learning. So you're two years into a three-year contract on a professional learning approach that sounded good on the front end. It really hasn't been effective. It's not really lived up to the hype. It hasn't landed in the field. And you think, well, we're already two years in. We've already spent this money. We've already got the staff to do this much. All the evidence is suggested not, but because we've done that, we should spend the next hour and the next dollar. And we say the first two years are a sunk cost. You cannot get that back. And so if we're thinking rationally, we would say, why would we spend this next hour or this next dollar from our budget on this? Well, we wouldn't. And so um, what we need to learn to do here is to say, that last hour or that, that last two years or that last one year or that $10,000 we spent, we had to spend that money to learn that this doesn't work in our context. And we need to say, now we liberate ourselves to say, well, what should we do with the next upcoming professional learning there? What should we do with the next round of budget? And we've got to get out of this sense of putting good money after bad. So that's the sunk cost fallacy. We all have it. And it's mostly in education. We feel quite embarrassed um, that we've spent public dollars that we've deployed our team or our colleagues' time on something. But when the evidence is becoming really clear, not just early phase, but you know, middle stage, that this is not actually having the impact, or maybe you've discovered this is the worst you actually discovered, actually it wasn't built on good evidence in the first place. We need to be aware of the sunk cost fallacy and we have to try to make the decision, how should we deploy future money and resources and it shouldn't have any, the, the past money shouldn't have any effect because that's a sunk 
property. Simon, that absolutely makes sense. And I think we're all guilty to that because as you mentioned, it, it's it's very easy to feel embarrassed that maybe you've made a mistake and really hard to admit that we should have taken a different direction. And uh, Simon, I, I do want to be respectful of your time. So I've just got a couple more questions if you don't mind. And the first one is, how do we say no to good ideas? Because it's all very well when things are going terribly and you can see things are not progressing in the way that you would like them to. But what do we do with those things that are kind of a good idea or that seem like the right thing to do? How do we begin to filter some of these decisions and and so we can only say yes to the essential things? Well, look, the first thing to say is um, there's going to be parts of uh, research, you know, whether or not these ideas are grounded in the best bets. And we really think that these are the things that are most likely to be useful. Um, Needs analysis, is this something that we really need at this point? Capability and responsiveness and readiness, are we actually even able to make use of this good idea right now. So there's a whole range of things there, but I do wanna just simplify this a little bit and just say, here's the thing, pruning doesn't even at the outset require you to be able to articulate what are the things you definitely will do. Mm. That's a great point. You can still engage in pruning to create the space and what I would say to create the necessary margin to then perhaps engage in the thinking about what truly is the right work. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not I'm not trying to evade your question here, but what I want to say is don't overcomplicate this very simple idea that I'm trying to teach and share, which is we've got an additive trap. We're getting lost under the weight of our own work. We're spending all of our time managing the work, emailing about the work, meeting about the work, not really getting the work done. This is unsustainable. Mm. Okay. One of the actions is to prune, to do this master, uh, this uh, mastering the art of subtraction and preservation. And it is possible to sometimes prune, first, as I say, the, the dead, the damaged, the diseased or the problematic. And so that often is just about really looking at medium to long-term implementation, reaction and impact evidence and saying, are there some things here from Ghosts of Principles past, et cetera, that we could actually respectfully move on? Uh, in that middle section, which is about saying, how could we prune back some things that are going well? Again, we don't have to get right to the intent, but we could say, what are we doing with professional learning that's going pretty well? How could we just cut the hours back, prune back? Oh, that's got a little bit complicated. Um, how could we prune back some of our meetings? I often say the easiest prune is cut every meeting by 25%. Um, and so you can start to do that level of pruning first. And that's what I would say. That'll then create enough margin and space for us to really think, okay, are we even able to consider taking on something additional? Mm. For me, the goal is, uh, as I mentioned, long-term impact and organisational health of schools. And so my basic uh, parameter for ever starting something new within our teams and schools is, hey, are we all wanting to do this to the point that it's embedded in our natural way of working? Are we willing, are we talking about doing this because we want it to become our just normal way of doing whatever it is, our well-being, our behaviour, our literacy, our numeracy, our interaction with parents and caregivers? Is Are we looking at each other saying, do we want to embed this as an organisational routine, as a set of practices such that it'll just be our way of doing things in the future? And so, but, oh, I, I don't know about that. I just thought it was kind of a cool idea and I heard it at a conference and other people are doing it. So the benchmark for me is, do we want to embed this? Do we want to make this a new organizational routine, turn it into our instructional habits, ways of working? And if so, then we need to know we'll probably have to go on a journey that's somewhere between three and more likely 18 months to two to three years 
to turn something into that work. And so I think, do we have an appetite to just play around with an idea or do we have an appetite to embed it? If we have an appetite to embed it, then we would say, where are we up to on our other embedding journeys? And do we have cognitive and emotional and learning bandwidth in the people who are going to have to do that learning and unlearning available to deploy against this? And that's the limiting factor in school change. I always say the limiting factor in school change is the pace of adult learning. Yeah. And so that's why I say, please don't try to change how you teach reading. At the same time, in primary school, you're trying to teach change how you teach mathematics because the same human, somewhere between 9 a.m. and 10.30 or 11.30, is likely to have to do something different out of autopilot twice in a row. That's very difficult. So stop trying to do everything in parallel and do things in sequence. And that's what you do. Once you've got enough margin, then you can say, what's the right work? What's the right sequence? Uh, For whom does this have cognitive and emotional and, you know, practice learning needs and my big mantra at the moment uh, Matt and I've just been back from some time in, in the UK I spent a week in Scotland and Wales places I've been working on mm. online I finally got back into schools and things and I just have this mantra calm progress do fewer things work on them through to getting embedded and go at a natural pace I love that. Uh, and that's what I would say just calm progress go at a natural pace things will take what they take doesn't mean it's slow, but it's it, it, it's at the pace of adult learning. And unless you've got an adult learning slot or spare capability, no matter how passionate you are, no matter how much you love the idea, there's no way that this team or this organization or this system can meaningfully take that on. I think we have talked about um, some really, really interesting things in this podcast, Simon, and your work is a, a constant source of uh, inspiration to me, um, and it has been for years. And, and I just wanted to say uh, on the record just how grateful I am um, for um, for your resources, for um, the, the the work that you're doing to invest into our wonderful profession. And it's a it's been a real uh, joy to speak to you today. So thank you so much for your time. And um, I, I can't thank you enough, like I said, for what you're investing uh, into our wonderful profession. And the, with people like you running professional learning and, and and coming up with these amazing concepts and ideas, I'm really confident um, in the future of our education system. So thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been a real privilege. Well, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for leading us so masterfully across anything from fatherhood to time scheduling to a system-wide reform. Uh, It's been a really enjoyable conversation. And most of my ideas emerge from generous practitioners like yourself, uh, people who are open with what they're doing, with how it works, their challenges. And that gives me the curiosity as a kind of applied academic to get into this work to see how it can work. And, you know, I do think we face some big challenges, Matt. I don't think uh, we're surprising anyone listening in to say that the the landscape that we're now functioning in around levels of exhaustion, around teacher shortages, around growing levels of behaviour challenges and other things. And so in that landscape, all I would say is I think that the ideas and the tools that we base our work on need to be evidence-informed. They need to be really simple and doable. And they need to be the sort of things that people don't just sort of play around with and then move to the next little shiny toy, but that they can get integrated and embedded in the the regular routines that make our schools work. So that's what I try to do and get up every morning early before the kids to to, to keep serving um, those practitioners and keep 
in the pursuit of that long-term mission, then I think for all of us, uh, we've got to be willing to persevere. Uh, we've actually got to see this as not months, but I see it as decades. I'm going to be in this game for many, many decades. I hope to be um, getting good at what I do in another decade. Uh, and then um, there'll be those those decades that for those of us who I suppose can be okay with the fact that the broader landscape isn't what we would want it to be. It isn't how we would want to design it, but it is this. And uh, I think we need to use some of those some of those challenges made as creative tensions to be even clearer about the right work and doing it in the right way and doing it in a way that uh, is sustainable over time. Absolutely. Dr. Simon Breakspear, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. All right. Hope to uh, meet for that coffee in person soon. Thanks. Yes. Thanks so much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.